This is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, subversely with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM. Uh, today we're going to be talking with a friend of Philip Agee who passed away last Monday uh, in Cuba and we'll talk about his, and celebrate his life of activism and progressive work. Um, with us on the air is uh, Lou Wolf, a close collaborator of uh, Phil and uh, also a uh, co-author. Um, welcome, Lou. Uh, good morning, Dan. How are you? Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, good afternoon where you are, yes. It's morning, yeah, actually. Uh, it's 9 a.m. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe you could talk about uh, how you first met Phil Agee, who was a CIA officer who left the agency and wrote an expose about its operations. I first met uh, Phil in London in um, the fall of 1975, uh, shortly after his book, uh, Inside the Company, A CIA Diary, which is uh, really the first book of its kind, the first book to tell the true story from inside about the CIA. There have been a number of books since then, but he was really, uh, I think it's fair to say, the first uh, major whistleblower against the CIA. And um, that book has been translated into over 30 languages around the world. And uh, it's been read, I dare say, by... I don't know how many million people, uh, both in this country and in other countries. Yeah, I, I, when I was in Vietnam, I even picked up copies of the book in Vietnamese. Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, I met Phil at a speech, the first public speech that he gave. Uh, that was in London in, that, in late 1975. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, I remember it was very cold that day in London, and uh, this was a speech in Conway Hall, where he um, he quite uh, the the idea of public speaking was very new to him. Of course, after, in the many years after, he spoke uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, but uh, this was the first time he had spoken, and uh, he he already um, he already showed his medal with. Uh, because in his book he had he had told the story of of his of the odyssey that he went through as he worked in the, in the three countries where he was posted by the CIA, which were were in Montevideo, uh, in first in Ecuador, uh, in the CIA station in, in in Quito, then in Montevideo, Uruguay, and then in Mexico. Uh, the final one he was posted there undercover as the. Olympic attaché uh, for the 1968 Olympics. Um, and uh, he, um, what really led him, in the book he explains it, but what, what really led him to uh, expose uh, the, op the dirty work of the CIA? Well, his, in the book he, he tells of what, what he went through. As he came into the CIA, he was very, uh, I won't say, Gung Ho, as such, but he really, really believed. The, he bought into the idea that uh, he could uh, uh, 
defend America. Um, he didn't look on it as building democracy. That was not a notion in pretty much anyone's head. Uh, that's all come in under uh, under the umbrella of, of, of George Bush, this George Bush, uh, but more in the sense of um, of uh, you know serving America uh, as he saw it, and uh, he 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 was recruited. Uh, after he'd been at Notre Dame, so he was he was brought up as a Catholic in a quite conservative family, um, a fairly wealthy family, and uh, he, his notion was that uh, although it was not a religious um, umbrella that he was under, it was it was more a, a idea of, of fighting communism as as it was told then. Uh, but over the years, twelve years that is from nineteen. Um, 57 to, no, what was it, 55, I guess, to 68, almost 69, but it was altogether 14 years. Uh, he, uh, again, gradually, it was a gradual metamorphosis that he went through. Uh, he began to question what he was doing and, and, and what the CIA was doing and what the CIA stood for. Uh, near the... Uh, middle or end of his time in Montevideo, he was sitting in the office of the chief of police in Montevideo, and they were basically chit-chatting about various things, uh, political developments and so forth, and then suddenly he said there was a sound of a man groaning, uh, and it got louder and louder and louder, and then, then the man was screaming, and it was just in the next room right next to the police chief's office, and Phil asked the police chief, well, what, what's, what's that? Oh, Phil, compadre, Phil, uh, Felipe, uh, that's, and he gave his name, the name of, uh, that's the man you turned over to us last week, and, and we're working on him. We're going to find out what he knows. And the man was being, clearly was being tortured. You know, and then in the L.A. Times uh, op-ed that was uh, critical of him uh, this weekend, uh, the, gu- the guy, the author, Tim Rutten, said that he never accused the CIA of torture, but of complicity in torture. Is that true? Uh, no, he, he, he did. Uh, I think it went beyond complicity as he, he saw it. He reported, uh, as did... Um, the journalist A.J. Languth uh, yeah. um, about the fact that the CIA sent a uh, very thin needle through the diplomatic pouch uh, um, hmm. uh, to uh, that was in uh, Guatemala and in Chile uh, with uh, uh, that was used for torturing um, men in their penis. And this this uh, piece of wire, which was thinner than any wire that you could buy on the open market, was electrified. Uh, so that I think he 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 saw that as torture by the CIA, though it was done by surrogates of the CIA. For sure. Uh, but they provided the 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 tool to do it with. Um, we're talking with Lewis Wolf, who was the co-founder of uh, COVID Action Information Bulletin, and uh, actually in the in the issue um, uh, Force 98, uh, Phil Agee writes about the t- looking back at 20 years of COVID action quarterly then, and um, the, 
annotation says he worked from the C- for the CIA from 57 to 68 when he resigned. Yes. So it's about 11 to 12 years. 12 years, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. 12 years. And, um, and so, um, so you went up, did you go up to him and talk to him uh, before the meeting or after the, that London meeting? No, after uh, he, a number of people, of course, wanted to speak to him. I mean, there was a huge crowd around him and uh, it must have been 30 people deep of people wanting to talk to him and uh, shake his hand and congratulate him. Some of them, of course, that, that had not yet read his book. It had just been out uh, a matter of a few weeks and was published by Penguin Books in, in London. So it was readily available. It wasn't uh, available at all in the United States and was only um, available if you could get a smuggled copy or somehow somebody brought it across the border from Canada or, or somewhere or was mailed to you, but you couldn't buy it in, a book, in any bookstore in the United States. Then later it was uh, published by uh, Stonehill Books, and in English, um, uh, well, obviously in English, but it was also <laughs> then later published in other languages. Right, right, right. The uh, I remember the paperback cover was, did it come out in hardback first before it came out in paperback in London? Because the paperback had the copy, a picture yes. of the typewriter that was bugged, or the That's typewriter right. case that was bugged by the CIA while he was uh, writing his manuscript. That, that's right, and that's the actual typewriter that Penguin Books uh, photographed. That, that, that was a typewriter that was handed to, to him by a woman who befriended, somehow got access to Phil, and he was living in Paris uh, secretly. Oh, in Paris, uh, oh. In Paris, where his, uh, the mother of his wife, then yet, not yet wife, uh, but uh, wife-to-be was living in Paris, and um, uh, and so he was living in this apartment secretly, and this woman befriended him and said, uh, knew that he or he had said something like, I'm working on a book or something, but uh, she was, of course, working for the CIA, and <laughs> she ran through the rain and made a big, big show out of running through the rain with this typewriter under some... Uh, another raincoat that she was protecting from the driving rains, and she and she huffed and puffed as she handed to, handed this typewriter to him and said, "I hope this helps you, Phil." Well, that typewriter, uh, which he used uh, then to work on the ma- manuscript, the early stages of the manuscript uh, for Inside the Company. And at one point, he came. He you know used to go out for coffee and uh, pastry or something, and then he'd come back. And um, he walked down the stairs to his cellar, uh, the cellar space where he was working, and he found this young man and woman uh, in a passionate kiss, embrace in front of his door. And it was weird because he he heard them talking as he came down the stairs, but then when they saw him, uh, they suddenly threw their arms around him and started kissing. Uh, And it was so phony, you know, (laughs) it was just uh, bizarre. And uh, it, it seems that uh, they were they had been surprised by him. So he went into the apartment. Uh, they suddenly ran up the stairs and, and ran away. Uh, and he noticed that uh, he heard their voices on coming from, you know, they had left the building, but he heard their voices uh, on this on this typewriter 
Mm. Over, over in the part of the room where the typewriter was sitting on the on the desk, and uh, so he walked over to the typewriter, and then he looked and he examined. He tried to find out where this was coming from. Then he suddenly realized there was a piece of the back of the typewriter it was in a typewriter case. Right. And the back of the typewriter case was sort of a little bit uh, was peeling off. And he said, "Well, what's that?" And he peeled it back, and there he saw all of the each of the type, each of the keys of the typewriter, of all the letters and symbols on the typewriter, uh, were attached to a transmitter. Each key was. Oh. Each key was, yeah. So, including the apostrophe and the uh, and the period and the slash mark and everything was a, a had a. Um, of course, he didn't fully understand it at that time, but it became obvious to him very quickly because he had. Um, he knew something about the tradecraft of the CIA after 12 years, and and it was clear to him um, very, very uh, immediately what had happened, that this woman who had given him this typewriter was uh, did it as a favor to the CIA or as an assigned uh, job for them. So they would know every time he typed something what letters he was typing? What letters? Not only what letters, but where he was. So if the typewriter moved, if he oh, was yeah. with him somewhere... They would know exactly where he was. It was like a, uh, a GPS, and long before there were GPSs. <laughs> wow. So this was in Paris, not in London. Huh. Right, right. Wow. So he discovered it in Paris. Yes. Yeah. So he ripped it. to say he no longer used the typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in the case. But the, the, how could, I don't understand, how could it, uh, oh, the because the typewriter was uh, attached to the case, so when you opened it, you... You were typing it in the case. Must be, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, it was like one, I think it was a Smith Corona, as I recall, and and uh, uh, I suppose you could remove it. I used to have one like that in, yeah. back in college. And you could remove the typewriter, but uh, I, I asked Phil about that once, and he said, well, I never got around to removing it. It was so easy to have it there, and then I'd close it so that it didn't get dusty or anything. <laughs> So maybe they sealed it. Then maybe they sorted it down or something. Yeah. Wow. Well, if they had done their tradecraft right, he wouldn't have noticed this piece of this corner of the cover yeah. of the of the uh, case was peeling off. You oh. know, they probably used super glue or something, and they missed that corner, and uh, that's what he noticed. Or oh, the audition had been transmitting back into the room. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because he heard voices. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, they went, um, did you meet him during this time he was writing the book, no? No, no, I didn't know him then. You didn't know, did you know about the book? I only knew it when it was, knew of it when it was published in, ah. in uh, 1975. I mean, with a lot of fanfare and... Uh, sure. He, he published it in England because he thought he couldn't get it published in the U.S. Uh, initially. Yes, that's right. But well, he wanted to publish it. Anywhere he could, but um, Penguin Books uh, said, we want the book, and so that's where it was published. I don't know if any publisher at that moment was going to, you know, challenge the CIA by publishing it. I, I think that was not going to happen. Yeah, to risk their, their, their line, I guess, their, their book right. line, yeah, the budget line, yeah. Uh, how about, um, so when you met him, what, what, what was he like when you finally did talk to him. Well, I, I, I remember shaking hands with him and saying how extraordinary, I had just finished reading the book and how extraordinary it was and what 
what a an amazing and courageous story he was telling. I mean, a true story, because it was obvious that it was true. It was straight from from you know the scene of the of the crime, as it were, um, uh, the continuing, ongoing twelve-year crime, I would say. And he was uh, he shook hands like he did with everybody. Um, but as he later told me uh, uh, that he had uh, thought that, because I was pretty much, well, there were other Americans wanting to shake his hands too, but uh, I said to him, uh, I'd like to help you. Is there any way I can help you? And he said, we, he later told me all about this. He said he thought that the CIA had sent me to, <laughs> to you know, check him out, to uh-huh. see where what he's working on now, to see how he got his information, to see, you know, all these things that the CIA would want to know in real time of what CIA was, what Phil was thinking and doing, where was his head was at and so forth. Meanwhile, uh, I thought, and I told him that, uh, I didn't sell him that, that time in Conway Hall, I told him later as we became very close friends, uh, very quickly, I should point out, uh, when we yeah. learned that we trusted each other. But I told him, I thought, Phil, I think you, you still have your, you have one foot inside the CIA. How could you possibly write this book? Um, and how could the CIA let you write this book? And how could, uh, how could you not be uh, in danger? Well, of course, I learned over the years, that he was in danger that whole time, in great, great danger from the CIA. And um, I can tell you more about that, but the, the point is that I didn't trust him and he didn't trust me. Well, uh, what, within yeah. a week or ten days after that first meeting at Conway Hall, we embraced and, uh, and we pledged to work with each other uh, uh, forever, as long as it took. And um, that's what, I, what we did. What did um, what 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 you said that he was his life was in danger? What did you find out that the CIA was was trying to do? Well, uh, he was under very 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 close surveillance um, through all those years when he was traveling, uh, when he was living in a number of different countries. Uh, six countries altogether that he was living in, uh, first in Paris, and uh, London was the place he tried to settle down, uh, London and in, um, in Cambridge, England, and in Cornwall, a place called Truro uh, in northern England, um, but then in a very large and public case, the British government uh, determined that they were going to deport him. And there was a very uh, extended and large and very popular campaign to to uh, force the British government uh, to let him stay in the UK. Uh, it lasted uh, for months and months and months uh, in uh, 1978, I think that was. Um, and finally, uh, and, and the, he was not the only one. There was another journalist, an American journalist, by the name of Mark Hosenball, who interestingly enough now works for newsweek right um It'd be interesting to see what they what they write in their issue this week i haven't seen it i haven't seen it yeah uh, i wonder if mark hosenball writes it because mark uh chose to to separate himself from phil and uh uh though at the time they were 
nominally, but they were sort of colleagues and, and investigating CIA activities in London and uh, identifying CIA personnel. Uh, but but uh, most of that was done by others, other journalists, uh, myself included, trying to track CIA personnel in London. It was a huge station at the time, uh, dozens of per people, uh, both uh, operations officers and, and uh, uh, communications officers in the embassy in London, um, as well as other non, what is known as non-official cover personnel who weren't at the embassy. They were under what they called deep cover. Uh, and uh, then he uh, finally, when he was deported from London, um, he tried to take up residence in other countries, including, including in uh, the Netherlands, in Belgium, uh, in uh, one point in Norway, uh, and he was expelled from all of these countries. That's and and Germany. Uh, oh yes, in Germany. So it was six countries that he was uh, dis deported from. Um, and it was very clear, though we couldn't prove it at the time, but it was very clear that it was done at the behest of of the United States government and particularly the CIA. Uh, on one occasion, uh, we learned that through uh, from a uh, high government official in the Netherlands that he acknowledged that, yes, the, the, the United States had pressured his government to, uh, to, to deport Phil, which is, of course, what happened. What, what, how about the, uh, any uh, physical attacks or attempts to eliminate him physically? Uh, we did not, though, that we know of, there, there were not attempts, um, at least outward attempts, but there was uh, information that uh, that came out that showed that he, that the government, um, through a Freedom of Information Act uh, request uh, by his lawyer in New York, um, that we there was a document that came to Phil or to Phil's lawyer that uh, said in some in, a, in great length, uh, but a lot of it was blacked out. But there was a reference to. The fact that they couldn't prosecute uh, Phil because, not because of any legal reason, but because they were afraid um, that were they to go through with that, through discovery, um, he could obtain documents that apparently indicated um, legal culpability of certain American, and you can put in brackets, intelligence personnel would be... Uh, would be legally liable for for certain crimes, and uh, the crimes it appears may have included um, plans to to assassinate him. And also, there uh, was also uh, break-ins, probably huh? break-ins, breaking into his space. Oh yes, absolutely, all of the above. But uh, there was also at one point uh, an effort to uh, induce him to go to travel to Spain. Um, uh, and he did go to Spain a number of times, but um, uh, there were certain indications that suge suggest that they, they were going to kidnap him there. Wow. So um, in answer to your initial question, yes, there were attempts, but you know nobody actually pulled a gun on him or anything like that. I will tell you a case that, that may have leaned in that direction, which was one time when I was 
doing research on CIA, CIA uh, personnel in the British Museum in London, and I had a table there with all of the books sitting in front of me, and uh, an American fellow walked into the reception area and said that uh, asked for me by name. And uh, Phil sometimes was there uh, working with me, doing his reading, and and um, and so he, the 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 man at the desk who was actually a friend of mine, uh, who was a British citizen working there uh, as the reception, the guy in reception in the reference desk, uh, he the, the the American leaned over the desk and handed him a. Is that the li- that's the library, right? British British Museum is the library. Is yeah. the that's library. where all their yeah. all archives, their, yeah, you know, records going back to the archives. Yeah, uh, what century? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. How about uh, in terms of um, just uh, personally? What was he? Um, how did he? Not personally, but politically. How did you know Phil um, changed his mind about the foreign policy of the U.S. How did that happen? You know, you, you mentioned the torture episode uh, in Uruguay. Well, it was thanks to his, uh, you know, his, after he left the CIA, he, one lives in, inside the CIA in a very compartmented and a very artificial um, environment in which uh, generally they're not supposed to read newspapers uh, unless that's their assignment to read newspapers to, you know, cut clippings and so forth. But that's, that's the least of what they do. And, and they're not allowed to read uh, history books or, or, um, hmm. or anything. That's just off limits for them. I mean, obviously, I'm sure some people go home and they read whatever they want. But uh, supposedly that's not permitted in, inside the CIA. And, and generally, I think that's the practice. And so they, they, they don't really understand uh, American history or world history uh, very much, except, of course, in the country where they're assigned. That's what they're, they're supposed to know everything about what's going on there. And uh, not only what's going on, but who they can buy and who they can manipulate and who they can compromise um, and who, if in the end they have to, who they have to overthrow and who they have to assassinate. That's what they do. I mean, that's their, their day job. That's what they do. And that's their night job, by the way. Um, mm. And uh, Phil, when he left the agency uh, in 1968, he he had no idea that he was going to write a book. He had no thought about that. He just uh, was very feeling very dirty, feeling very um, worried about the fact that he'd done this kind of work for 12 years. And... Um, then he started reading. Um, 
at that point, he he went to the libraries and in, in, uh, in, where he went first um, in Paris, and then, as I said, and then in um, after after he wrote the book, uh, he he went. Uh, uh, I think to Cuba was the first place he went to. And, and they said, well, if you want to learn more about the history, you can use our the State Library, which had, you know, all kinds of books from all over the world and newspapers, all the all the files of all the newspapers in the countries where he had worked, and all the New York Times and the Washington Post and all other media um, mm. uh, from you know from Eastern Europe to Western Europe to Latin America to Asia to Africa, uh, they had they had it all, and so he started to read, and he of course spoke uh, in, uh, Spanish very fluently, and he spoke uh, some other languages less fluently, but um, he he his eyes were opened, uh, you know, in the space of a few months of reading, and uh, that's when he started to question some of the assumptions that he had. Um, throughout the time was he was at the CIA. Did he? Um, when did he come to realize he had to name names? Well, he named names in in the book. Um, uh, there are over two hundred. I think it's two hundred two hundred fifty people, uh, both Americans and nationals of the countries where he was working, um, who were working with the CIA, um, the Americans on the CIA payroll, the uh, others, some other nationalities on uh, as assets or as uh, agents, as they're called. I think sometimes in, in the discussion about the CIA, people misunderstand these terms. If you're in the CIA, on the CIA payroll, you were an operations officer or you're an analyst, a CIA analyst. But if 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 you're a national of the countries of those countries where they're working, you're an agent. So uh, you know you have to draw that distinction. In any case, uh, uh, he had named those people at that time, and those were basically every name of every person that he could remember working with. Um, and this was all from memory. He hadn't he hadn't kept a a written diary. I mean, it was all. You know, from his memory, uh, but of course, these people were colleagues. Uh, you know, whether they were the Americans in the embassy or the nationals in, the, in those countries. You know, working as as journalists or as uh, as police, as intelligence officers, um, as uh, uh, local officials, and in some cases, heads of state. Um, and they were uh, who were on the on the CIA payroll. So. Uh, he named everyone that he knew when he was in the agency in that first book. Later, um, he and I and other journalists decided that that um, not uh, for any other reason that, than that we felt that they were accountable, and he felt, I should say first and foremost, that they were accountable for what they were doing in these countries, that, uh, you know, the whole range of the activities, the whole gamut, um, from, you know, from just uh, manipulating local officials to buying elections to um, uh, taking over trade unions to uh, collaborating with the, and, and I should say more than collaborating that as it was the case, uh, uh, 
um, uh, actually creating intelligence and police services, the agencies of repression in those countries. Um, and if you take it up the line, the other things that they were doing were, you know, up to and including overthrowing governments and, and assassinating heads of state. Uh, but as part of that, the major activity of the CIA was both economic destabilization, a term that, that um, became sort of, um, you know, everyday language uh, under, during the Reagan administration because they used it, destabilization. And uh, then the paramilitary activities of the CIA um, uh, in terms of arming, uh, creating and arming uh, uh, private armies and uh, hit squads and death squads. Yeah, in the in the book you co you co-author Lou with uh, Phil, uh, Dirty Work, the first Dirty Work uh, book. Uh, there's a yeah, chapter. He writes the introduction uh, about myths, and he said one myth is uh, naming individual CIA officers does little to change the agency, and is done only to expose in innocent individuals to the threat of assassination. So he mentions the need for people to be personally accountable for what the agency, what they and the agency does. Uh, they are the Gestapo and SS of the time, and as in the Nuremberg trials and the war in Vietnam, he wrote, they cannot shed their individual responsibility simply because they were following a superior's order. But apart from the question of personal responsibility, the CIA remains a secret political f police, and the exposure of its secret operations and secret operatives remains the most effective way to reduce the suffering they cause. And that, I, I think, expresses the fill that I know and knew, and, and, and that's the, from his heart. That was what he truly believed. That was not rhetoric for him. That was really how he saw it. Yeah. He also talks in the, in that introduction about the myth that that the critics of the CIA are KGB agents, and of course he was tied with that uh, that uh, you know smear. Yes, that's right. And uh, it should also be very clear to your listeners that he never wanted to see anybody scratched or killed as a result. Um, uh, that was the last thing he wanted to see happen from identifying them. And indeed, never, ever was a single person that he named or that I named or that other journalists have named who were CIA personnel uh, has ever been killed or scratched as a result. And uh, that even includes the case of uh, Richard Welch, and, uh, who was the CIA station chief in Athens, who was assassinated in 1975, um, uh, December 23rd, 1975, he was assassinated uh, outside of his, the front steps of his home. Uh, the people who took, uh, if you will, credit for it in a manifesto that they issued, uh, the, the November, it's called the November 23rd movement. 17. November 17. November 17. Thank you. Uh, which was named after a day in, in, in Greece when the military junta had, had um, uh, committed an a, a, a assassination of a number of, of people, of leftists. And so they undertook as an underground uh, guerrilla group uh, to take 
take revenge and uh, to take action against uh, uh, CIA personnel who were identified very, very closely with the military junta in, in Greece at that time, which was extremely repressive. Uh, but they, they did say in their manifesto that they had planned to assassinate for months. They had planned the, the very down to the finest detail to assassinate uh, a man by the name of Stacy Hulse. Stacy Hulse was the chief of station in, in Athens, and one day suddenly he was transferred to Canada, where he became the chief of station, and he was replaced by Richard Welch. And they had no, uh, they had planned to, as I say, to assassinate uh, Hulse, but they, so they went ahead with, and, and they described in the manifesto, sitting two rows behind uh, Richard Welch in the movies, they described. Uh, uh, all of his habits, you know, they had him under very close surveillance. Um, and, uh, but the bottom line here in the, in the Welch case, which was blamed on Phil Agee, uh, wrongly and falsely, uh, the bottom line is that everybody in Athens who wanted to know knew where the CIA chief of station lived. It was well known. It was so well known that the tourist buses would drive by the house and the driver would point that out. That's where the CIA, the head of the CIA lives. And uh, they, they didn't necessarily know his name, but they knew where he lived. And uh, to this day, those, those uh, tour buses still drive by that same place. <laughs> um, I think the house has actually probably changed now, but anyway, <laughs> the point is clear. So the point is that the CIA, um, people knew that the CIA head of station lived in that um, apartment. And that, and that underlines their stupidity because simple CIA tradecraft would tell them, don't live in that same house. And in fact, Richard Welch himself was told by the CIA, don't take up residence in that house. Everybody knows where it is. And he wrote back in, in cables that were later revealed that... Um, and written up in the Washington Post in great detail, uh, he was told, don't live there, everybody knows, and he said, no, we like the house, my wife likes the curtains, it's near the embassy, and so forth. Um, and so he decided that they would live there. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's actually the November 17, uh, yeah, it is November 17 uh, group. But he was killed named. December 23rd, that's right. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you find that um, the what did you, what do you see as his legacy? Um, you know, the CIA is still growing strong, despite the um, you know exposure of the dirty work and the congressional investigations. Yeah, yeah. More than going strong, they are they are um, in many ways, uh, uh, I would say, more powerful than ever today in uh, under in the Bush era. Um, and that's hard to imagine more powerful than ever, but uh, they, they have been given license, and I, I, in part I blame Congress for this, uh, that they've given them a blank check, particularly since September 11, 2001, to do pretty much whatever they want um, within, within certain uh, limits. Uh, there, there is the oversight function of the House and Senate, uh, the two intelligence committees, um, but it showed itself uh, very clearly when uh, when the CIA leaked to the New York Times the fact that they had briefed the intelligence committees, both the, both committees and both parties. You know, it was on a nonpartisan basis. Uh, 
they, they call it the the club of six or no the club of eight um, uh, which are eight members of Congress who are briefed and uh, uh, excluding their staffs including excluding anybody else and all of these eight people are members of those committees who are sworn to secrecy they're not allowed to to uh, talk about anything that they are told in those in those uh, uh, secret top secret meetings um, about about the uh, videotaping yes, of the, about the torture. torture tapes. That's right. Yeah. And so they were told. It now appears um, uh, over two years or three years ago about the existence of these tapes. They were also told that there was consider a consideration of them being destroyed because they they uh, it was never explicitly stated apparently why, but that they would be destroyed. And and you don't have to be, you know. Um, uh, Albert Schweitzer or somebody to know to see why. I mean, it's not rocket science. They wanted to destroy the evidence uh, of of waterboarding, they, and it, it's not about protecting the identities of those people. I mean, we've all seen tapes that are that are um, you know the faces are blurred, so you don't see who they are. They could have done that. They would still show the waterboarding, but not show who's doing it to the to the prisoners. Uh, but I should point out regarding waterboarding that waterboarding was a practice the United States engaged in back in, in the year uh, 1899 and 1900 and 1901 in the Philippines. I found documents, found photographs of the waterboarding that uh, the U.S. Army was doing to Filipino, um, innocent Filipinos in, uh, in that period, in the Philippine-American, so-called American War. That's uh, when, so it yeah. didn't just start recently. Right, and that's when they were coined the term gooks to call the Filipinos then. That's right. And it was used later in Vietnam, of course. Exactly. Yeah, there was a, actually a front-page photograph in the New York Times of waterboarding in, 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 in Vietnam, which wow. I found when I was researching the question. So, um, you know, the United States is not innocent uh, in any, to, to any degree on this matter. So, what what do you th what do you see as his as uh, Phil's legacy? Well, he's a man who really, truly, uh, I, I, you think about the issue of morality, and he really believed in the in the fact uh, that what was wrong with American policy was that, the, in the first instance, the human costs of U.S. policies, whether it was CIA policies and practices, or whether it was other parts of the government that uh, that create the conditions that we create in other countries the desperation the the anger the the um, hatred of of america not of american people but of the government that practices um, uh, aggressive policies towards those countries and country after country after country after country that we we overthrow their government, we, we manipulate their elections, and all the other things that we've discussed. And uh, Phil really, truly understand that, understood that. Um, I'm still talking about in the present, ten present tense. It's hard yeah, to I know. believe that he's gone physically from us. But he, he really stood for the highest principles. Uh, I know some CIA former colleagues of his have condemned him. In fact, uh, there's a woman in Florida who wrote a letter to the 
the organization uh, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, which is a, a dissident group of um, former CIA personnel that's, uh, that's founded in Washington that's been very outspoken against uh, U.S. policies. And uh, you may know about Ray McGovern, who stood up and physically in front of uh, Dick Cheney and, and called him a liar. Um, yeah. He was one of the founders. And, uh, and this woman, a former CIA person, said, quote, I hope, Rich, uh, I hope Philip Agee died an extremely painful death because of all the American personnel, American CIA personnel that were killed as a result of him naming them. Well, there's the lie. It never happened. <laughs> and, uh, and for her to say that, you know, I hope he died painfully, which he did, I should point out, mm. um, is, is sort of a sad comment on, on these people that, that believe the, men's, the ends, bad as they are, the ends justify the means. And um, uh, they would have liked to boil uh, Phil alive if they could have. For sure, yeah. And I, I, I will say to you, Dan, I believe, it may, it, it may be hard to prove, and I'm, but I'm sure history will end up showing that one, one, some way, somehow, in the CIA... The day that Phil died last Monday, at 10:45 the night, he he. The next day, um, they had a celebration at CIA headquarters, whether it was a party or toasting or probably more likely a, a memo went out on the internal um, bulletin that they have to all CIA personnel that uh, to the to the effect that uh, the greatest enemy of the CIA is now dead. Hooray! Right, right. I'm sure. How do you it's a feel? Sad comment, and I, yeah. How uh, do you? One day we'll know the truth. How do you see her, his struggle continuing? Well, uh, there, there are hopefully ways that we can continue his work. I know there are. There are people around the world that uh, appreciate what he did, and. Um, uh, and in this country, there will be a memorial to Phil. Uh, we don't yet have the date. We don't know exactly when and where, but it will happen. It will be in New York, probably. Perhaps, yes. Uh, and, uh, and also, um, we hope that it will be possible to, to publish, uh, republish a lot of his work that he, he did. Uh, I mean, he wrote not just uh, the books that he wrote but also many many articles yeah any interviews including i think by you uh you had didn't you have a radio interview with him i can't remember i don't think i did but i, I did visit him in hamburg and now i can't remember if i taped anything uh, <laughs> i was like well, in such a rush <laughs> i know i, I think you did. sometimes and i interview people but i have an edit uh, yeah. goodman on democracy now yeah including uh the new york times and the washington post and the L.A. Times and uh, the London Guardian and on and on and on. I mean, he was widely quoted and widely, because of his credibility. I mean, it's not just because he worked at the CIA, but because he was a profoundly uh, intellectual man and a man who stood for something. And uh, and so people understood that. What, what You've read some of the obituaries that have come out. What, what is your reaction to them? I haven't seen the one in the L.A. Times. Uh, I, I, I heard that that, that was uh, um, that was an op-ed. Uh, an op op-ed. I'm sorry. Uh, they just reprinted the reprinted the Washington Post o- obit. Right. Well, 
doesn't that say something? They couldn't find something original to say. I mean, they have to quote each other. Which is better, um, probably, if they had done something original, they might be worse. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, I, I think, well, the New York Times one, uh, I thought, was reasonably uh, accurate. Um, there were some, they did talk about Richard Welch and that he had been blamed for that assassination, but that uh, others have pointed out um, the the apparent fact that uh, that was not the case, and uh, it's more than apparent; it's definite. Um, and uh, it did talk about it; did quote Phil. Uh, so I thought that was quoted me. You quoted, quote yeah, and his. Bill Shap, yeah, yes. Um, and and I thought that was reasonable uh, um, by. Uh, one of the best uh, journalists that I know, uh, Scott Shane, who uh, used to work for the Baltimore Sun. So um, the Guardian had a piece by Duncan Campbell. Yes, who was also a kind of fellow traveler in a sense, in some sense of exposing yeah. uh, uh, CIA right. secrets. Uh, I mean, uh, intelligence secrets in England. That's correct. Yes, and not not only American secrets, but also British secrets. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Um, did you? Well, um, did you find that um, he, how was he able to keep the steady pace of his writing uh, up to the end? Uh, I mean, some people get burned out, you know, get, uh, lose faith in doing this stuff. How, how was he able to maintain his, um, maintain it? He was tireless. I mean, I hate to say it, he got, he died, uh, very tired man. Um yeah. Um, because he never stopped working, and uh, his his work ethic was extraordinary. Um, and maybe he shouldn't have worked as hard because of his health. I mean, his health in the end, he lost the battle. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a man who never stopped working, never stopped looking for the truth, uh, not just about the CIA, but far beyond, uh, you know, the, the confines of the CIA. He, he really was a, a, an extraordinary uh, intellectual historian uh, of, of the world. And, uh, but his allegiance was not to any country but to, to truth. And he, uh, some would say truth as he saw it, but it was truth. And, and I yeah. think he, he will go down in history as a, as a great... Uh, great patriot. He actually, there was, I didn't see it, but somebody told me yesterday there was a, a piece on on ABC News yesterday uh, which profiled three people who had died this past week. Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, who climbed Mount Everest, Everest. I'm sorry, I don't know who the third person was, and the and Phil Agee, and they, and they told me that the, the piece on Phil Agee was quite... Uh, Objective and it actually included a clip with Phil. And, oh, um, you might check that out. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Did um, do you see overall that the media depictions have been fairer than you thought? Say it again. I could hear. Ha- you. Has the media write-ups uh, have they been fairer than you expected? Some have, some haven't. Uh, the blogs have been pretty. Uh, anti, I think the right-wing blogs, especially, yeah. of course. Well, I haven't looked at the blogs. Uh, uh, probably that's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I got one somebody sent me from the uh, Herald Sun, I think, is, which is, I think, in New Zealand, I believe, and it was just like four one-sentence paragraphs and uh, one each worse than the one before. <laughs> so, you know, that's all <laughs> they did. But um, Yeah, yeah. Did you, um, when you, he got his uh, surveillance FOIA under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, Phil got his, um, um, or his lawyer got the documents. How big was it? Do you remember? Uh, he got, uh, I think it was over 80,000 pages. <laughs> he once calculated that they had, I don't know how many man hours that they had uh, devoted to, you know, generating that much paper. I mean, all the forests that, that were taken down to, 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 to make that file. Um, uh, it was extraordinary. I mean, and of course, there's still thousands of pages that have not been released and, in fact, are being withheld by various government agencies, including the Justice Department, the CIA, the FBI, uh, and, and the State Department. Um, uh, I don't know if the Agriculture Department has a file, too, but, you know, yeah. everybody was interested in Phil Agee. Yeah, I'm sure when, you know, because of my own files, that that was because I visited him. I'm pretty sure that was it, yeah. Well, all credit goes to you, Dan, for being the one that forced the CIA to actually physically change their website because of their spying on you, and they had to admit that they don't aren't supposed to spy in the United States uh, except in certain circumstances, uh, which was um, uh, or spy on Americans, I should point out, and uh, and permanent residents. Admit on their website yeah. that that's not fully true. Even permanent residents, yeah, and yeah. Uh, of course, after nine eleven, all bets are off. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Phil definitely uh, led, uh, you know, exemplary life, um, a progressive with his progressive work, and it's a motto to all of us. And I, I should point out from the human interest side, he left two wonderful sons and a wife, and, um, uh, you know, they will never forget their father. Yeah, and actually we'll be talking to, hopefully, to one of them uh, next show or in a coming show. Yes. Uh, yes. To, to Phil Jr., I believe. Yes. Who's on his way back to this country. Well, thank you, Lou, uh, for taking the time. Thank you, Dan, very thank much. You. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks. We've been talking with uh, Louis Wolf, who is the... Um, founder of COVID Action Quarterly now, uh, now is in abeyance, the magazine, but for a long time it was a crusading magazine against the CIA, and he also was co-author with uh, Phil Agee of Dirty Work, a massive expose of the dirty work of the CIA. We've been remembering the life and times of Phil Agee, the former CIA case officer who went public after resigning from the agency and wrote a book called Inside the Company and later wrote a biography about his life on the run called On the Run. This is Dan Zhang signing off with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Sun, signing off.